This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Well, good afternoon and welcome to Vancouver Consumer. I'm Sterling Fox and in just a few moments, Sherry McMillan returns to our show to talk more about trusts and how to protect and preserve the value of a lifetime of effort. In our second hour, we'll have a panel of fire chiefs and safety experts in to talk about home safety and how we can better protect our home and our families. And we're going to talk about the silent killer carbon monoxide in that conversation. But first, here are some of the top consumer stories we're following this week. Fiat Chrysler Automobiles is recalling more than 193,000 of the 2019 Ram 1500 pickup trucks with adjustable pedals because the brake pedal may detach. Electrically operated uh, adjustable brake pedals allow drivers of different heights to position the gas and brake pedals closer to them or further away from them for comfort's sake. Now, Fiat says the Ram's brake pedal may detach if drivers adjust it to its rearmost position. Fiat Chrysler said it's not aware of any injuries or crashes related to the issue, but it recommends that drivers not use the adjustable pedal feature until their truck is repaired. Dealers will further secure the brake pedal at no charge to owners, according to Fiat Chrysler, which also says it will notify owners of affected trucks, although more than one-third of those affected trucks are still on the lots at dealerships, and those, of course, will be repaired before they're sold. And here's a pretty dramatic change of heart. Consumer Reports has just removed all Dyson stick vacuum models from its recommended list over reliability issues. The magazine says consumers can't count on them to last. Survey data published this week reveals that Dyson stick vacuums break at a higher rate than those of any other brand in Consumer Reports testing, pushing them to the bottom tier of their predicted reliability ratings. And for Dyson, those statistics translate to a rating of 2 out of 10 for predicted reliability, which is in the poor zone. Dyson's canister and upright vacuums fare better than its stick vacs for predicted reliability, and two Dyson models make the cut for Consumer Reports list of recommended uprights. Quite a change from a couple of years ago when Consumer Reports then declared the Dyson V8 Absolute, quote, the best stick vacuum we've ever tested. If you're an electric car driver or thinking about becoming one, here's a little winter tip you should know about, he said on a zero degree afternoon. Uh, Cold temperatures can sap electric car batteries, temporarily reducing their range by more than 40% when interior heaters are used, a new study found. The study of five electrical vehicles also found that high temperatures can cut into battery range, but not nearly as much as the cold. The range returns to normal in more comfortable temperatures. Many owners discovered the range limitations over the past couple of weeks while in the grips of the polar vortex, which is now affecting us here on the coast, too. Owners of vehicles made by manufacturers including Tesla, the top-selling electric vehicle company, complained on social media about reduced range and frozen door handles during the cold snap. The cars tested the BMW i3, the Chevy Bolt, and Nissan Leaf from 2018, and the 2017 Tesla Model S and the Volkswagen e-Golf. All have a range of at least 100 miles per charge. Bottom line, quote, if you want to go somewhere far in the cold, you're going to be using more power. Range 
would be reduced further by extreme cold in northern climates, oh, like ours, minus 27 in Calgary right now, by the way. Uh, the recommendation is that drivers heat or cool their cars while still plugged into a charging station. It says electric cars can still be used in extreme climates, but a little extra planning is required. And you'll be happy to know that Vancouver has been named as one of the best cities in Canada to find love. According to a new report from German-based relocation company Movinga and published in the Daily Hive here this week, Vancouver was ranked 29th best city globally and the third best city in Canada to find love. Behind Toronto and Montreal locally, Miami, first place overall, followed by London and Gothenburg, Sweden. According to the report, just about half, 49.6 of our city's population is single. When it comes to online dating, Vancouver received a high score, 9.2 out of 10, meaning that people here are eager and looking for love. But what do Vancouverites want in a prospective partner? Well, according to the survey, the main trait men looking for, kindness, women, intelligence. Where Vancouver did rank low was its sex positivity score, receiving a mere 5.9 points out of 10. So, Vancouver may not be, well, sexy, but at least the price of a date in our city stacks up cheaper than most places on the list. The average price of taking someone out in our town, just about 90 bucks, which is a steal compared to the almost $120 it will cost you in Miami. Those are some of the week's top consumer stories. We'll look at a few more later on in the program, but coming right up is Sherry McMillan from McMillan Estate Planning with news of another Vancouver seminar and lots more on preserving family wealth. Welcome back to Vancouver Consumer this Saturday afternoon. I'm Sterling Fox. A pleasure to welcome back Sherry McMillan to our program. Sherry is the CEO of McMillan Estate Planning and has been with us on a number of occasions, uh, typically before a seminar. And I guess there's another one of those coming up in just a few weeks. Sherry, hello. Welcome back. Thank you, Sterling. It's good to have you with us. Last time we were on uh, together, you talked a lot about the trust fund uh, and how trusts have been uh, so instrumental and so useful to Canadian families in terms of the way they plan their estates. Could you take a couple of seconds? Because I don't know how many Canadians listening right now are even aware of what trust funds are. We'll talk about taxes in a minute. But trust funds, I mean, we sort of, we sort of throw it out as the slaw is a trust fund baby. The guy's an airhead. He's a millionaire and he's never done a work in a, a day of work in his life. That's it. We use it almost pejoratively and, and it, it shouldn't be. And I think we use it pejoratively because we don't understand what the heck we're talking about. So let's go back to square one, if you don't mind, Sherry, and talk a little bit about trust because as I recall from our last conversation, it's been a few weeks, but as I recall, the whole concept of trusts came about a hundred years ago uh, in order to assist widows and orphans. Is that the case? It, it certainly is, Sterling. You have a good memory. And, you know, trusts are something unique and a real opportunity for us. And I think what's happened is we've all had a negative connotation, like you say, mm-hmm. about trusts in the media. So, you know, we have the spoilt Hilton girls or we have <laughs> the royal family who's so affluent that we can't connect to that mm-hmm. because it's out of our scope. But the tool is what's important to understand. And the tool is basically an authorship of your own family. So you can customize a trust to suit your situation. And the trust so, originally was British and we brought it over here to Canada after the Brits created the system. Is that the case, Sherry? 
That's exactly what occurred. Okay. So if we go back a little bit in history, um, trust planning came about in the 14th century in England, actually. And how that unfolded was that there were two classes in society. We had the very, very wealthy class, the kings, queens, lords. And then, of course, we had the very, very poor, the serfs and so forth and peasants. And so common law was written uh, for the commoner. And the commoner would use a will to transfer their estate to their loved ones. And then, of course, the kings and queens and lords could oversee that transfer and take all the tax they wanted. And so it's how the Robin Hood stories all began, really. Of course, yeah. And, you know, the kings and queens at that time, because they could author law, decided they didn't like that system, a public system, to transfer their wealth. So they built what we call today trust law. And trusts are really just a separate legal entity of the family unit. But because it's like a holding pot, it doesn't do anything naughty, like King Henry VIII getting married a whole bunch of times. Mm, It just behaves. And so it can steward and care for the family asset base and make sure that that family asset base stays in the bloodline. And so we're going to see that, obviously, in the royal family one day when the queen passes. Those assets are going to continue to move to Charles and then downward to the boys. There is no way that it's going to go to Camilla's family or their new brides. It is going to remain in that royal family. Now, that tool doesn't have to be at the exhaustive expense of having an estate of the size of a royal family. We can use that tool, all of us in Canada, if we have any uh, size of net worth. And so this is a fantastic opportunity to protect and safeguard our asset base. Not only that... And I think another massive important area is it can protect your retirement because inside trust law, we can negotiate a guarantee of your asset base and not capped at that 100000 that most of us think about, but not capped at all. And so if you have millions of dollars, you've outgrown the bank system. Sure. And you really should contemplate trusts. Uh, is, is, it, is it sort of a rule that o- there's only one trust Per family? Is that the way the system is set up? Sure. I, I, again, this is just a yeah. getting to know you kind of uh, question about the, the whole nature of trusts in Canada. Well, one of the unique options that we have in Canada is we're allowed to have as many trusts and for as many purposes I as we like. I didn't know that. How about that? Okay. Yeah. So, you know, generally we don't want to over plan you either because as you age, you want your life more simple. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's usually your objective. But an example of that is you know, Sterling would be, let's say I'm a married couple and I live in BC and I want my son to get the family cottage because he's helped me, you know, maintain it through the years. Okay. Um, well, there in BC, one of the challenges is you can't give more to one child than the other because of the legislation in BC. But there is a solution. And the trust is the solution because what we do is we execute your estate into what is called a spousal trust. It's a very unique trust that came into play over a decade ago in BC. And myself and my spouse get to use my asset base through the balance of life. But when I die, I can distribute it however I see fit. I don't have to follow the parameters of the legislation of the province. So if I want to give the cottage to my son, I can do so without even probating. And so it's a really fantastic tool to serve you um, in your lifespan to protect your asset base, but also in the wealth transfer. And so... You know, that's a very specific need for a family, and that's the kind of trust we may use. For a different situation, let's say our children are professionals, so they're doctors, lawyers, accountants, and so forth, engineers. Well, they have the challenge of what we call a look-through, meaning 
that they're not protected from the liability of their work. But if we leave their inheritance to them in a trust, that keeps it separate of any liability that they may have through their balance of life. And so it really protects them. And it's a great gift we can give our children their estate in that way instead of through a will where it exposes it entirely to their risk. Interesting. And, and of course, you can, and you can, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm, I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm raking notes here. As a matter of fact, there's so much information coming across. So, and, and I'm going back to the whole matter of the will and, and the cottage. It's a great example because, you know, the, the second home, the summer home, that kind of thing, that does become quite a contentious matter uh, in, in terms of a will uh, after someone passes along and there are several children and one child has been, well, I want to number one son to get the cottage. Well, all the other kids are going to just wait a cotton pick in a minute here, and you can see a court case coming up. But you can avoid all of that by dealing with all of those assets and all of those people who might feel entitled to it well in advance through a trust rather than letting it go until after you're gone and there's a big scrap over a will. That sort of work, am I getting on the right track here? You, you've nailed it on the head, Sterling, and that It's a very proactive tool that we can design in our families to keep harmony because, you know, mom and dad always have the authority. The matriarch and patriarch get to set up the rules. If you leave the rules for the children to determine brothers and sisters, you are just setting them up to have conflict because brothers and sisters also have spouses who have an opinion. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so all of a sudden you've got, you know, some real issues in the family. Alternatively, if mom and dad set it up, we all often you know, hold a family meeting when it's designed and lay out how it's going to be, you know, distributed. Maybe the son gets the cottage and the girls get some cash. And now they know that in advance. And, you know, it can't be challenged because a trust is not challengeable in an estate. And so, you know, even if they don't like it, they're going to have to contend with it. And so I think a a tool like that is very helpful for Family Cottage. And I'll give you some um, suggestions on Family Cottage. It is one of the most contentious assets in our state. I'll just bet it is. You know, in just one case study of that is what does clean mean to everybody? When you leave the property clean, what does that mean? And, you know, one family will feel different than another family. Mm -hmm. And so... When we're dealing with a family cottage, what we suggest is that we actually build in a business plan around the cottage of what different definitions mean and how the cottage would be attended to. So maybe once a month the cottage is cleaned professionally. Or maybe um, instead of one child getting all the summer months, maybe every year they get a different month so that everybody gets a fair shake at which uh, particular months they can use. Mm-hmm. And so we build it more like a business model so that their rules have been laid out by the parent group rather than the children sparring over these issues. And so, you know, the other real big issue in family cottage is keeping it in the bloodline. So we don't recommend you use a will to transfer your cottage because the moment you transfer a share of the cottage to your child, then it's exposed to their spouse. So if they go through a divorce, they've got to share that portion. Right, of course. So, Sherry, uh, family harmony seems to be at the root of why a lot of Canadian families opt for estate planning. I would suggest that actually it's the main reason. Uh, Certainly we are all, you know, giving contemplation to protecting what we've built and we want that safeguard built in. We don't want to pay tax, which is normal for all of us. Yes, 
but we want to make our affairs easy for our family as a gift to them, and we want to make it harmonious so that, you know, they do continue to have Christmas dinner together. And so you can't ignore in a family, if you're designing properly, you can't ignore real soft issues that we all face in Canada. You know, one in four of us have mental health issues. Uh, one in six of us have addiction. So, you know, these are real things that families have to face. Half of us divorce. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, variables in every situation about how can you protect this family unit, sometimes from themselves. And, you know, how do you use tools to make sure of that? So addiction is one of the prevalent ones in mental illness. And so as an example, we build sometimes what's called a recovery trust. And it's designed deliberately to you know, support anything that helps them recover from their health concerns. So maybe it pays for all the treatment and maybe they don't actually own the house directly. The trust owns it for them right. so that they can't just sell it and buy drugs. Sure, yeah. You know, so there's these practical things that we have to give away to in our estate planning that, you know, certainly a will never even contends with. And so these are the wonderful tools that we have, though. And we have lots of case study and lots of examples in the community that we can beg, borrow, and steal from about how other families in your situation have found solutions that have been tested, really. And we can be sure that they'll give that governance that we're going to need for that particular situation. Sherry, on the notion of an estate plan, period, if, uh, and I'm sure there, you, you hear this more often than not, uh, people come to you going, well, I have a, I've got a will. I, I spent a lot of money. It's very elaborate. Uh, the best lawyer in town put my will together. So I'm confident that I have a, a well-prepared will, and that's my estate plan, Right. And you have to say, probably not, I'm guessing. I have to say probably not more often than I say it's good. Um, and the reason for that is this. A will is a distribution of your assets. It tells where you would like particular assets to go. What it doesn't do is plan for tax. It has no contemplation of tax whatsoever involved. And so if you think you have a tax plan because you have a will, you are sorely mistaken. In addition, a will is public. It goes through the court system and it has an opportunity to be challenged. And so if you do have any kind of contentious issues in your family unit, this is a very dangerous way in which to design your estate. So things like if you have a family business, do you really want the net worth of your family exposed through the court systems? Probably not. Probably not. Probably not. Um, do you, do you want your estate tied up for a year or two through the court system? Probably not. So, you know, knowing and understanding the limitations of what a will is in the first place is fundamentally important. And my rule of thumb for families is if your estate is worth a million or more, you've actually outgrown traditional will planning and you are more sophisticated than that tool. And we need to give an appropriate estate plan designed to your affairs so that we have mitigated taxation and legal risks. And in addition, making sure your wishes are being met, that there's no opportunity for challenge, especially on things like the cottage. Mm -hmm. We don't want to lose a cottage or a family business. And so, you know, I think as a community at large, uh, thankfully, we have grown in Canada. We now have affluence. 
And we contend with it differently if we have affluence than we do when we had our cowboy hat coming out west with our $5 in our hands. That's right. Looking for that, that, or looking for that free quarter section to get started on a whole new life. Uh, Sherry, I need to take a break for the news. Uh, before we take the break, let me just quickly remind our listeners that Sherry's coming back for another seminar soon here in Vancouver. It'll be on March the 7th at 7 o'clock in the evening at the Marriott Pinnacle Hotel. And we'll tell you more about those details and how you can get more more information and sign up when we return here on Vancouver Consumer right after the news. Welcome back. It's Vancouver Consumer here on CKNW. I'm Sterling Fox, joined on the line by Sherry McMillan, the CEO of McMillan Estate Planning, online at macmillanestate.com and live in Vancouver at the Marriott Pinnacle Hotel coming up soon on March the 7th. It's another one of those seminars. Sherry, you've been doing these seminars now for a while here in Vancouver, and every time you come to town, uh, you get a, a fairly uh, intense number of people who are really, really curious about the message you have with respect to estate planning. And we've already talked about how how very dramatically a will, no matter how carefully drawn up, does not represent an estate plan. Do a lot of people who go to these seminars have that in mind? They have you know, invested a little bit of money. They've got a good lawyer, done up a terrific will, and they come to you going, what more do I need? Does that happen? Well, I think often what happens, Sterling, is once families have completed a will, the message is often that you've done an estate plan. And mm-hmm. there's nothing further from the truth because a will is, again, only that distribution of your assets. What you haven't contended with is the taxation on your estate through your lifespan and also through the lifespan of your heirs and your children. So one of the other things to give a lot of contemplation to is if you can save tax on your estate each calendar year, the compounding factor of how good your retirement ends up being and how much wealth the children inherit is dramatic. And so a will isn't going to contend with that whatsoever, only estate planning will. And so most people, when they realize that the will is sort of the end game, what about the current game? And how do we plan to create a lifestyle that's tax effective for you through the balance of your life? And, you know, there are a lot of areas that we can minimize tax and in some cases mitigate it by planning proactively each calendar year. And so once people see the power of planning an estate as a life plan, they get very thrilled about it because it becomes not negative but positive because it's creating all kinds of new opportunities and freedom for them that they didn't realize they had. Well, that's one of the benchmarks of Macmillan Estate Planning, isn't it, Sherry? Where a will, as you just mentioned, pretty much uh, well ties everything up for when you go, end game wise Estate planning should be about living, not dying, right? Well, that's right. And so there are some fundamental things that all of us have concerns about during our retirement phase of life. The first one is, do we have enough to get us through our retirement phase? Mm -hmm. That's a primary question all of us do ask. And even if I do have enough, which asset should I spend first? What's the most effective? Because maybe I shouldn't spend my RSP yet. Maybe I should take corporate value. Like, how do I design it from that point of view? And Ultimately, there are a number of other facets that go along with that. Should I share my estate with my children while they need it when they're young compared to them inheriting it if I'm 100 and they're 70? Does it make a lot of sense anymore? 
So these are all questions that all of us have. Should I retire now or should I wait another decade if I'm going to live that long? So these kinds of questions need to be contemplated in your overall life plan of how you're going to design things. You know, where are you going to be resident? Do you want a snowbird? Do you want to live in Spain? What is it that is your goal and objective? And maybe you're going to relocate where your kids have landed and had grandchildren. That's also another concern. You bet, yeah. Sherry, so, uh, I was going to ask, though, you're talking about the, the will, which, which we've already come to, to the conclusion is definitely incomplete in terms of planning. But a lot of people, in addition to having a good lawyer put together a will for them, a lot of people have a financial advisor, a person who helps them with their investments and, you know, getting that uh, mortgage organized and all that kind of stuff. So if you have a, a lawyer who's got a good will organized for you and you've got a financial planner who's taking care of getting your mortgage renewed and all of that and getting some investments organized, do you still need an estate planner on top of all of that? It's an excellent question. And there, again, is another myth in the community that you have things in order. And so I always use the analogy that our financial planners are there to help us build our estate. And we need them in the community. Of course we do. But ultimately, that is what we often call in the community a certified financial planner or a CFP. Yes. We also need in the community what is called a TEP, which is a trust and estate practitioner. And so I always say, up until the moment you build the estate, you do need your certified financial planner. But once your estate is in order, you now need a trust and estate practitioner to oversee the next phase of your life. Uh Because you are now in preservation mode and spending mode. You're not in building mode anymore. It's a different mode. And you're now sharing and so forth. And so... I will say that trust and estate practitioners sometimes are quite contrarian to certified financial planners and not deliberately so. It's just because we're looking at it from how do we now use this estate instead of continuing to build it up. Ah, right. And so we're going to design differently. So for example, just one little tiny example is if you're working with a financial planner, you're going to try and dollar cost average into your portfolios while you build up your RSP, for example, because you want to get a nice low price. When you're in retirement, that's the worst thing you can do because why would you want to get a low price when you're spending money? You want to get the highest price possible. So we time the market when we're in retirement. We don't dollar cost average out. We make sure we're picking high points to get to your income streams through retirement. So it's a very different approach, as you can see. It's actually the opposite. Yeah, really. It, it seems that the two would be working sort of toward, uh, working almost against each other with you in the middle. Yeah. So what we do is when we're helping a family, we obviously have certified financial planners on staff as sure. well. But uh, in addition, if you have great people you've worked with, your lawyers, your accountants, and so forth, we're not there to replace good people you have. What we're there to do is guide them now that you're at this new phase of life where you're preserving and spending and sharing and how to do that the most effective way we can. Okay. And so we'll often guide your professional team, you know, your accountant say, no, no, don't take that out of the company yet. Let's spend the money that's already had tax paid on it first. And so we help your team uh, design properly so you get the best value from what your life's work has created. Okay. Now we talked about uh, the benefits of, of an estate plan with respect to family harmony, uh, but I would imagine there are considerable tax benefits. And one, I'm sure that a lot of people who come to your seminar 
seminars, the next of which is on March 7th there at the Marriott Pinnacle Hotel. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people come to an estate planning seminar with very specific goals in mind, or at least information goals. How can I, going forward, uh, enjoy the fruits of my labors, preserve as much as I've worked so hard to get in the first place, and pay tax to the minimum extent allowed by the law. Don't don't want to do anything illegal, but also don't want to pay a a nickel more tax than I absolutely have to. It's a desire we all have. I mean, we are not new money in Canada. We are new money, and we're not old money. And so, you know, we worked really hard to create what we have. We didn't have it given to us. So we're very conscientious about preserving it and paying our fair share of tax, but not overpaying, obviously. So the very first thing I always share with families that a lot of families are unaware of is that we have a number of tax benefits in Canada that we can take advantage of. And they're often not well understood because families are working within the banking system and not the trust systems. And so they're not even introduced to these privileges. So the first one I like to talk about, uh, Sterling, is something called the maximum tax reserve. And what it means in English is this. No matter what the size of my estate is, and let's just use a $10 million estate. If I have a $10 million estate, Canada Revenue Agency allows me to relabel up to 25% of our estate to grow tax-free. So, Inside a trust or just period? Inside trust planning. Gotcha, okay. So if I can have... 2.5 million of my 10 million grow tax-free through my lifespan, let's say it doubles twice. That just gave my estate $10 million. You have solved your tax problems in your estate. You don't need to go offshore. You are going to be protected for retirement, evidently. But this is a tool that nobody really understands because we're not educated in this area. And it's the high net worth families that are using these privileges to mitigate tax in their estate. And it's also how uh, families are paying corporate tax when they pass and transfer businesses to the next generation. So one of the great tools that we all have in Canada is, let's say I have a big RSP and I have some non-registered money that's growing taxable. Well, I should relabel that non-registered money to go non-taxable, and that's going to massively impact how much I can keep out of my RSP when I start to draw it down. And in fact, maybe I don't even have to pay tax on my RSP when I draw it down if I've planned my estate and affairs appropriately. So that's just one example in estate planning of a tool that we have in our toolkit that we can mitigate tax with. And, And, you know, it's phenomenal. I'm sure. And, and, and I guess it's a concern. And people who have money have good lawyers, good accountants, tax planners, financial planners, all of that sort of thing. But how many people do you find just, and you've been at this a long time, Sherry McMillan, how many of us know even a little bit about trusts and the advantages, tax and otherwise, available to Canadians through the trust system. I would say a very low percentage of us have a clue. Would you agree? I'm disappointed to say, Sterling, but my life experience is about 1%. Wow. It is that low. Um, And the reason for that, I I will frame it, I think, is the community... um, 
Only 5% of us in Canada hit a net worth of a million or more. Now, Vancouver is unique because if you own a property, you're hitting that. Um, Now, beyond that, only uh, 2% of the Canadian population ever hit 10 million plus. And so this type of information, unless you're working with a specialist like ourselves, you know, you, you miss the opportunity. But it has application for all of us. And, you know, one of the unique parts about these options is that we get to keep more of our estate each calendar year, which has a compounding effect. And so, you know, if you do this kind of planning for 10 years, all of a sudden in 10 years, you have a very different looking estate and, you know, gives you even further freedom. Maybe you end up buying the houses for the kids in your lifespan rather than waiting until you pass. So these are some of the blessings that we have right now in Canada and some of the tools that we have in our toolbox uh, to make sure we're mitigating taxes. And that's just one tool as an example. Yeah. Um, the other tool that I think is a really common misunderstanding is that you have to pay tax on your RRSP at the highest rate of tax if you're wealthy. And so you shouldn't contribute anymore. And I'm contrary on that and say, no, no, no. You go ahead and contribute to your RRSP because you're deferring tax. And when you get to the age of 71, 71 to, yep. yeah, we have to draw it out. We have tools in our toolkit, again, to mitigate the tax while you draw it down and have you pay the lowest rate of tax. So, you know, it's a lot of uh, planning opportunities that are bypassed if you don't design it with an estate planner. Yeah. If you're just traditionally looking at, as I filed my tax returns, I'm in good order, and I have a will, you're missing so much more than that. Right. Sherry, only a couple of minutes left, to, to uh, regrettably, because I could talk about this for a long, much longer time. Well, I wanted to ask, though, who, listening to us right now, should most be um, focused on this? Oh, this this couldn't possibly affect me. I don't have that much money. Well, if you have a house in Metro Vancouver, and even if you don't have a huge income, you still have assets probably in the seven figures. So what sort of individual or family should be paying attention to this possibility, this estate planning concept? Well, I think the very first uh, core group in the community are our business owners. They say over 70% of them are going to do a wealth transfer in the next 15 years. And if they're proactive, they can mitigate a lot of taxes they would have otherwise not had to pay. And so, you know, we attract a lot of business owners because of that. Sure. The other, the other group are professionals in the community because they have what is looked through, doctors, lawyers, engineers. That group, um, you know, has risk, but we can protect them too. And then lastly, families with high net worth because they have a lot to jeopardize. You know, it's not $5,000, it's $5 million, and do you want to risk it? And so these are the core groups that we want to think about. But there's also the group that have real issues, and I call that the soft issue group, but people that have addiction and people that have mental illness, you know, they need different protective uh, planning designed to meet those particular issues they face as a family. Interesting, Sherry. And, I, I have to leave it there, unfortunately, because I'm almost out of time, and I need a few seconds to remind our listeners that you are going to be conducting another seminar on March 7th at the Marriott Pinnacle Hotel here in Vancouver at 7 o'clock on March 7th. Sherry McMillan, CEO of McMillan Estate Planning, returns to Vancouver for another seminar, and it's going to be, I expect, pretty busy as the last ones have been. All the information is available on her website, macmillanestate.com. Sherry McMillan, uh, good luck with the next seminar on the 7th of March. We'll talk again soon. Thank you, Sterling. And we're back after this. 
And once again, our thanks to Sherry McMillan for another really interesting hour. So much to learn about preserving that which you've worked so hard for your whole life for. Next hour, we'll zoom in on household fire safety and carbon monoxide issues with an esteemed panel of experts. It's time now for Duly Noted, and this time around, our producer, Ben Dooley, looks at Valentine's Day. Thanks, Sterling. Well, Valentine's Day still means big business for some retailers, Some consumers say they aren't buying in to the expectations. According to a 2018 study by the National Retail Federation in the U.S., many people are having a change of heart when it comes to Valentine's Day. The study showed little more than half of those under 55 plan to celebrate on February 14th. That is down from 72% 10 years ago. Still, Amy Van Gerven, the owner of Pamets Flowers in Peterborough, said February 14th is one of her busiest times. It's the biggest day. Other ones might be the week ahead or the month ahead, that type of thing, but Valentine's Day is definitely a one day. And when it comes to popular options, roses are still the favorites. A dozen red roses is still the most popular item that we would sell for sure. However, a lot of people do do mixed uh, bouquets and maybe include some roses in it, um, but still definitely tried and true dozen red roses. She estimated about 50 dozen roses will go out the door and some 200 bouquets. And if you haven't done any shopping, don't worry. Van Gerven says you aren't the only one. We have some pre-orders for sure, but most of it's usually just the lineup out the door um, the entire day of last minute, rushing in to get some flowers, going home after work. I'm Ben Dooley, and that's Dooley Noted. Thank you, Ben. Time for a couple more consumer quickies before the news. The province's Student Ranger Program is back and accepting applications until the 24th of this month. It's in its second year, and the Student Ranger Program is open to people from ages 18 to 30 who have been full-time students in the past academic year and intend on returning to full-time studies in the fall. This year's program will provide 48 young people a training and employment opportunities in BC's parks and protected areas and has a 30% Indigenous hiring target. For the 2019 season, 12 crews of four student rangers will work in provincial parks mostly in regions throughout the province including North Van and Seashelt locally and as far away as Bella Coola, Prince George and Fort St. John. The program runs from May until August with crew members making between oh, 17 and about 18.30 an hour and crew leads will make between 22.50 and 25.50 an hour. For more information, go to the BC government website, go to the parks section, and find out how to become a student ranger. One of the many places here in Metro Vancouver to welcome the Lunar New Year and celebrate the Year of the Pig happens tomorrow at Richmond Centre. Lots of large-scale and eye-catching lantern displays suspended from the ceiling to see and enjoy exciting cultural experiences, including the traditional lion's dance, of course. Enjoy visits with the God of Fortune, who will be handing out lucky red pockets with chocolate coins. This all starts tomorrow morning at 11 o'clock at Richmond Centre in the main gallery on number three road. And of course, the best part about it all is it's free. Those are some more of the top stories of the week. We'll look at even more in our next hour, and then we'll introduce you to our panel of experts on home safety. Right now, it is time for the news to 3 p.m. You're listening to Vancouver Consumer on 980 CKNW. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. 
unless otherwise identified. The guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.